Thank you for tuning in to Living Life with Purpose, a ministry of Florida Bible Church in Miramar, Florida. At Florida Bible, we believe that life is preparation for eternity and hope this message will be an encouragement and blessing to you. More information about Florida Bible can be found at www.floridabible.org. Although a bit exaggerated, this is what we've been talking about. This is really more reality than it is fiction in this postmodern world that we're living in. People are kind of looking out there at this smorgasbord of different religions, and they're saying, which one gives me the best deal? You know, which one is the most uh, conducive to the lifestyle that I want to live? Which one has the best offer? And the idea of what is the true path has been lost. It's all about who is the best and what's the most hip and, and, and what really is convenient for the lifestyle that I want to live. That's why we're taking time to do this series. Today we're going to reach out to our Jewish friends, our if I can get my slides going here, we're going to, that's the wrong set. We're going to reach out to our Hindu friends. And, you know, some folks may be saying, you know, why are we doing this? You know, I see this glazed over look and this glazed over kind of a thing. And some folks, and this series really is a different series than, than what we've done in, in the past. And what we're doing is we're taking time to peek through the windows of these different religions so that when God gives us an opportunity to possibly walk through the door with somebody from these religious experiences, we'll be able to speak well. Now, so many of us kind of get the idea that we're just on our own in life. And we're thinking, you know, I'm never going to talk to a Jewish person. I I'm never going to talk to a, a person from the Hindu faith. That, that's not going to be my experience. But listen, here's what we, we lose sight of so often. We lose sight of this fact. And that's that God is in control of our life. See, we don't know where God's going to take us. But we do know this. God loves everyone. And God loves people from the Jewish faith. God loves people from the Hindu faith. God loves people from the Buddhist faith. God loves people from whatever faith group they represent. He loves them and he passionately wants them to know that he has made provision for their eternal forgiveness and for eternal life. And we now have the opportunity to be his instruments to go to these people. So we have to prepare ourselves to be ready for when God might open that door. And so that's what we're doing. We're looking through the window... So that when God gives us the opportunity, we can walk through the door. Do you understand that Hinduism that we're going to talk about today is the fifth largest religious group in the United States of America? It's the third largest religious group in the entire world. Hinduism plays into this whole postmodern philosophy of life today. One of the things that we've got to understand as moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles is that the world today is a different world than we grew up in. Uh, a lot of you probably had the same kind of growing up experience spiritually, religiously that I had. I came from the Midwest, Ohio. That's where I was born and raised. And the whole issue in those days was whether you were Catholic or Protestant. How many can, you, how many, that was your experience, yeah. You know, and, and moms and dads, you know, who are you dating? Is that a Catholic girl? Or, you know, the Catholics are in, who are you dating? Is that a Protestant boy? 
And that was the whole thing. You know, it was, it was whether you were Catholic or Protestant. Today, the world has become a different place. And, and our children are being exposed more and more to these different religious perspectives and will be exposed to it more and more and more. And that's why, as we've talked about, so many of our children that we raise in the Christian church often go on to college and secular university and they're swayed away from the faith by these kind of religions that better fit the postmodern view of tolerance and political correctness that says, you know, uh, there's no one way, there's many ways, and, and this religion espouses that. And so this is a very attractive religion to people. Many celebrities are coming on board with Hinduism today. Julia Roberts just announced that she is going to raise her family in the Hindu faith. Heather Graham, Britney Spears went through a, that period of her meltdown, and she turned to Hinduism, having been raised a Christian, a Southern Baptist Christian, who had trusted Christ as her Savior. There's a lot of confusion out there today. And so we need to understand these different faith perspectives because they may visit us in a very intimate way. In addition to that, in addition to that, we need to understand that the Hindu faith is growing. It's not something that is over there in India. The Hindu faith is right in our own backyard. Do you understand that in the state of Florida, there are 15 Hindu temples. And three of them are right here in our backyard. One of them is on Griffin Road in Southwest Ranches. I mean, it is here. I was talking to somebody after the first service who works for American Express, and he says, I work all day long with people who are Hindu. And, and right away, his wife chimed in and says, yeah, and the kids that my kids go to school with, they're going to school with a lot of children who are Hindu children. This is not something across the sea. This is something in our own backyard. And so our children are going to be increasingly exposed to this perspective of religion. And we need to understand it so that we can answer their questions. And we increasingly are going to be uh, working along people who espouse this particular religion. In fact, it's, it's uh, estimated that in the, by the year 2030 that the Indian economy of India will be the third strongest economy in the whole world. As that happens, more immigration is going to happen in our country. We're going to merge more and, and rub shoulders with them. So this isn't some kind of abstract kind of academic experience. This is something that we are going to be dealing with in a very real way. And of course, it's eternally important also, because the book of Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 12, reminds us that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. There's a lot of people who very sincerely are embracing many of these religions, but the problem is these religions, the path does not lead to eternal life. It leads to eternal separation from God. Now, it is our privilege, because we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, it is our privilege and it is our responsibility, because God loves all these people, to share the truth, to share the gospel with them. And learning how to do that is really important. Now, as we reach out to our Hindu friends today, and I understand that part of this is going to seem very academic, and if you're a guest, this is, again, something that, that is very unusual for our church. This is a different series, but I hope you understand the purpose that we're doing this. We want to keep some terms in mind. One term is Brahman. Now, Brahman is the Indian concept or the Hindu concept of God. That's what Brahman is. God, Brahman, Brahman, God. But it's a very different kind of God than we experience. We celebrate and we sang about today God who is a redeemer. God who is 
cognizant and interested in the affairs of mankind. And not only mankind in general, but individuals. Our Bible says that he knows our name and that he knows the hairs on our head. And we see, we pray to God that he will intervene for us in challenges. And we worship God and we understand him to be a caring, compassionate person who is interested and involved in our lives. But that is a totally foreign concept in the mind of those who embrace these Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism and and Taoism and and, uh, Zoroasticism in these religions. To them, God, Brahman, is this impersonal force, this cosmic energy that exists in the world. He's not a personal God. He's an energy source. This is the Star Wars version of God. May the force be with you. And I don't mean that to be funny or insensitive, but that's the concept. That God is this energy force. God did not create the universe. God is the universe and everything in it. Now, they have developed over the years a succession of gods. Now, Naguna, Brahman, that's this idea that we were just talking about. That God is really a cosmic force in the world. Has no attributes. He's just this cosmic energy out there. Now, because it's hard to wrap your mind around that, as Hinduism grew, and they they began to develop more scriptures, they began to try to put some attributes onto God, this idea of this cosmic force, so that people who weren't as enlightened can kind of identify with this force and this idea of Brahman. And so they made Saguna God, and this is just God with attributes, sometimes called Ishvara. Then it further developed into what they called the Trimurti, which is like our trinity, To try to get people to understand this force more, they broke down to more personal traits, like Brahman the creator. Okay, I get this, this force that creates. And then there's there's uh, Vishnu, the preserver. Okay, there's this force now that preserves everything in the universe. And then there's Shiva, who is the destroyer. This is the wrath of this force that turns against evil and things like that. Now, they further developed it from Vishnu, the, the preserver into ten mythical incarnations that they call avatars. Some of them were animals in the forms of like a tortoise or a tortoise or a bear. And others were in the form of a human representative like, like Rama or Krishna or Buddha. And so it developed beyond that. Now ultimately, the Hindu system of God developed into 330 million different gods that are part of the Hindu faith. But to understand how they look at it, they do not consider themselves a polytheistic religion, even though there's 330 million gods. They consider themselves a monotheistic religion because all those 330 million gods are just representatives of Brahman, who is the force of the universe. Kind of like, I'm a man. But to my wife, I'm a husband. To my children, I'm a father. To my nieces and nephews, I'm an uncle. To my grandson, I'm grandpa. I'm the same man, but I have many different manifestations. And so that's their concept of God. God is this impersonal, cosmic energy that makes up the universe. And they have divided it down to these many gods just to kind of give a personality and and something people can hang on to. Now, another important term is puja. Puja is worship. This is how they worship. Understanding that this big energy thing... This, this cosmic energy is what they're worshiping. And so their worship occurs in temples. Again, we have a couple. We have three of them right here in our general area. It occurs in their homes. 
those who practice Hinduism, the vast majority of them will have a place in their home, either a room or a, a, a larger closet that they have erected a shrine. And they worship and pray and they wash their, their idols in their home. We'll talk more about that, or outdoors even. And basically, their worship involves an act of showing reverence to a god or a spirit. And that's done through prayers. Prayer is a huge part. It's also done through songs and singing, but not like we do here. They don't gather in congregations like this, like we did today. It's more individualistic. And in rituals. Some of the rituals including every day, before they will go worship at their shrine in their home, they will bathe so that they themselves are clean. Then they will wash their gods, their, their, their icons, uh, in respect and reverence of those. In the temples, the priests wash the icons uh, numerous times every day because the idea is that if they don't, it's showing disrespect to the gods, and the gods' spirit will leave the temple. And so therefore, they want to keep them clean and show reverence to them so that the spirit, the energy of those gods, remain in the temple. So it is a very different kind of worship experience. Now, during puja, an image or another symbol of a god is a way of gaining access to that god's cosmic energy. They don't think that that idol is the god, but that idol contains the cosmic energy of the god that they're trying to tap into. And that's the goal of this, this religious system. Atman is the soul. What we call the soul, they refer to Atman or Atma. And it's got a different concept. Brahman is this energy force. And in reality, from the Hebrew perspective, we are all part of that energy force. There is a divine nature to all of us. We are extensions of that energy force, Brahman. Now, the problem is, we've lost consciousness of that. And we've traded our rightful creative place as part of that energy force, for material things and the pursuit of, of advancement and, and the pursuit of fame and, and, and pride and all those kind of things. So we're lost. We've lost our identity. What, who we truly are is, is a part of Brahman. We're an extension. Now, moksha is salvation. This is the goal of Hinduism. This is where they're trying to get. And where they're trying to get is to be reunited. A better way to think about it is reabsorbed into the cosmic energy of Brahman. The idea is this. Self ceases to exist. When you finally reach the state where they're looking to reach, self doesn't exist anymore. Kind of like a raindrop falling into the ocean. Once the raindrop falls into the ocean, it ceases to have an identity as a raindrop anymore. It has now immediately become part of this vast ocean of water. That's the idea. That's the goal of Hinduism, is to become once again lost in the cosmic energy, to become who we really are, part of that energy again. Our self ceases to exist. And when that happens, we are released from all the human suffering and trials and tribulations that we experience during our lifetime, according to them, many lifetimes. That's where Samara comes in. Because, according to Hinduism, we've lost our way, and we forgot that we're part of this, this Brahman energy field, we are trapped in this seemingly endless cycle of reincarnation. 
Our goal is to be reunited and reabsorbed into the energy of Brahman. But until we can find our way back, we are going to be trapped in this endless cycle of being born over and over and over and over again. Now, moksha, salvation in the Hindu faith, is liberation from this endless cycle of samara, of reincarnation. Now, karma, how many have heard of karma? Karma is the vehicle that determines how many reincarnations we're going to have. Karma is either the merit or the demerit that attaches itself to the atma, to the soul of the individual, based on how you live the current life. Good karma is attached to your soul if you live a life of integrity, if your life is characterized by acts of benevolence and generosity, if you're a selfless person, if you're a kind and compassionate person, if you've demonstrated reverence to the gods, then good karma attaches itself to your soul. On the other hand, if you live this life experience in indifference towards God, indifference towards your fellow human being, if you're abusive, if you're insensitive, if, you, if you're unethical in your business practices, if, you, if you're unethical in, in your family relationships, then bad karma attaches itself to your soul. Karma is the way you live your life in this life. It determines how you will be and into what you will be reincarnated into the next life. Depends on how you live this life. And it has an accumulative effect over the thousands or tens of thousands of life that you live. That karma continues to build up, either good karma or bad karma. Depends on what you're going to come back in. Karma determines how many times that you will be reincarnated before you ultimately, and they believe ultimately, no matter how many lifetimes it takes, that everyone will finally find their way to moksha to be reabsorbed into the energy that is Brahman. Now, they believe that there's three paths to moksha. There's three ways back to being saved, to be reabsorbed into Brahman. The first is karma, the path of work. Sometimes it's called dharma. In this particular methodology, it's just like many people are trying to do with Christianity. It's a work salvation. You, you live this life that is exemplary. And you go above and beyond in your acts of goodness and kindness and sensitivity and generosity and benevolence. And so the idea is that you have so much good karma built up that you are investing in life after life, and the good karma that you've built up in this life gives you the hope of attaining a better reincarnation in the next life. Now, if you put in mind to the Indian person, the native Indian person of India, not of America, remember, they have lived in a caste system. Their social system is a caste system. Now, legally, it is not as much anymore, but still socially, it is their experience. At the top of the caste system is the Brahmins. That's the priestly class. Under them is the warrior class. Under them is the, the elite business person class, those who have savvy in business. Then comes your blue-collar class, 
And at the bottom, which is illegal in India today, is your what they called the untouchables. This was the bottom strata. They had little rights. They had the worst food. They lived in the worst conditions. They were considered people that were rejected by the gods. They had built up really bad karma over their lifetimes. Now, part of this reincarnation process in that kind of ideal is reincarnated into the upper caste levels over time. Now, it provides the hope of attaining a better reincarnation. So they work and try to build up good karma from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime to lifetime. And at some point, maybe after thousands of reincarnations, they will, through that path, obtain moksha, reabsorption into Brahman, the energy force of the world. Now, another way is janana. And that's the path of wisdom or the path of enlightenment. This is considered the hardest path to moksha. And this is for like the elite thinkers, the elite worshipers of Hinduism. The idea is to inquire enlightenment through the systems of meditation and yoga. This is what you kind of uh, we, we kind of put with Hinduism, that with, with the yoga position with the fingers and that. That's kind of what that, that's janana. That's one path to moksha. Now the idea is this: that you overcome maya which maya is the illusion that the physical world actually exists. See, when you trace everything back to Brahman, there is no physical world. It's all an illusion. And we are trapped in this illusion. But through meditation and yoga and, and, and investing our time and opening our minds up, we free our minds from the captivity of the illusion that we actually exist in a, an illusory world and we find connection again through enlightenment, through wisdom, through meditation, through yoga. Our minds are open and we see that this world is illusion and we are reunited with Brahman. Now the third path is bhakti. This is the most popular path. This is the one most people follow. And bhakti involves this. Choosing one or several of the 330 million Hebrew gods... And you focus in on those gods, or that god. Bhakti means reverence, devotion. So what you're doing is you are giving your all. You are reverencing and you are worshiping a certain god or several gods. Stella and I had the opportunity to go to Trinidad a few years back and speak for Burbal Budrum. And Trinidad has a huge Hindu population. And what you see all over in Trinidad are houses, and in front of each house, you see, who, uh, that represents a Hindu family, you see a flagpole, a thin little pole, white pole, attached with a colored pennant on it. Now, that colored pennant represents one of the 330 million gods of Hinduism. The gods that that particular household are worshipping through bhakta in hope of obtaining moksha, this reabsorption into this universal energy that is Brahman. And you'll see 50, 60, 100 pennants out in front of a house. And so what they do is they worship passionately these gods. And the idea is that these gods, because they are passionately worshipped, will intervene for them in life and will help them to bypass maybe hundreds of reincarnations and will help lead them to the way of moksha. That is, in a nutshell... That's the Reader's Digest version. I could give you a lot more. I'm fascinated by it. And I really could give you a lot more, but I don't want to be mean to you. Because I already see that, that you know, you've got a certain level of tolerance and then we need to get beyond it. 
So understand that Hinduism is a complex organism like any other religion. Christianity is a complex organism. But those are the basic tenets that you need to understand. That's where they're coming from. That's where they're trying to get to. Now, how do we reach out to them? Well, we've got to follow the same prescribed pattern with any group of people. Number one, build a genuine friendship with them. One that's not artificial just because you're trying to get somebody saved. Build a friendship with these people. You will have opportunity to. Like I said, they are in our backyard, and they're in our workplaces, they're in our schools, and they will continue to manifest a growing population among us. Prepare with prayer. Again, we need to enter into any exchange of our faith with any other person, whether they have a faith or they're an atheist. We need to do that prayerfully, understanding that we have no special power except the power that the Lord gives us to be an instrument that He, through the Holy Spirit, uses. So we need to pray. When we start finding out that God has opened up a doorway to friendship with somebody from Hinduism, we need to pray for that person, pray for ourselves, pray that we'll be sensitive, pray that we'll be impactful in their life. Then we need to be a credible witness. Now, this is so important with someone from an Eastern religion, be it Hinduism or Buddhism or anything else. Why? Because it's all about karma, remember? It's all about karma. And if you're a person who is foul-mouthed, and you're a person who's a cutthroat at work, and you're a person who cuts deals, and, and you're, all that in their eyes is what kind of karma? That's bad karma. You're attaching bad things to your soul. Why do I want to hang out with you? Why do you have, do, I, do you think you have anything to offer me? Your life is characterized by bad karma. See, they're looking for people to associate with who have good karma. People of integrity. People of character. People who are joyous about their faith. Yeah, come over to Christianity. You want a burden? Come on over to our side. We'll give you a burden. That's not attractive. We need to be credible witnesses. And by the way, we can learn something from the Hindu people, although we don't believe in karma. We as Christians need to be careful who we hang out with too. Because you become who you hang out with. The Bible says don't hang around with an angry man and you'll become an angry man. So their idea of this karma actually plays out, not in the way they believe, but it does play out in life. Then ask probing questions. Ask them about their faith, as we talked about with our, our Jewish friends. And we'll talk about with anybody. Ask about them. Find out where they're at. Find out which path of moksha they're, they're pursuing. Find out which gods they might pursue. Find out how active they are. And, and just show an interest in them. And just out of politeness at some place and sometime, they're going to say, well, you know, we've talked a lot about me. What do you believe? Tell me about what you believe. How are you pursuing moksha? When that door opens... Focus on Jesus. Now understand this, that Hinduism is open to other religious leaders. Where if we were trying to open the door with one of our Jewish friends and we immediately start talking about Jesus and focus on Jesus, what's the response going to be? Whoa. It's going to be a wall up. Not true with someone from the Hindu faith. In fact, many modern Hindus believe that Jesus is actually one of the mythical incarnations of Vishnu. That he was one of those incarnations that came to mankind. So focus on Jesus. Now here's a powerful tool to open the door with. Mahatma Gandhi, who was one of the most influential Hindus of all time, you know the name, actually said this. He said, I say to the Hindus that your lives will be incomplete unless you reverently study the teachings of Jesus. 
Now, a, a strong advantage of reaching out to someone from the Hindu faith is this, that they believe in the sacredness of Scripture. Whether it's their Scripture or whether it's somebody else's Scripture, they are open to revering that. And even Gandhi said, you should reverently, any Hindu should reverently study the teachings of Jesus because he will lead you to good karma. That's his, his methodology in it. Now, remember though, you're talking about being a credible witness, Gandhi's also the one said, I would become a Christian myself if it wasn't for Christians. In other words, the hypocrisy of Christians, he could buy into Jesus and buy into the gospel, but we betray that message with our life. Sad to say, but it's true. All right, so what do we do? Number one, we focus in on Jesus as the incarnation of God. They get the incarnation thing. You don't have to, to teach. You say, let's look what our holy scriptures, and they're going to buy into holy scriptures because it's holy scriptures. Look what our scriptures say about Jesus. In John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He was God incarnate among. That will resonate with them. They understand this whole idea of incarnations of God. Now, they're not going to believe that he's the only incarnation, but he's going to, they're going to accept that he was a incarnation to begin with. So it's a place to start. Then focus on Jesus' humility. Remember, they're all about good karma, and humility is, is the key. It's the doorway to good karma. And we, we pr- present Jesus as the model person for good karma. I mean, it says that he was full of grace and mercy, Jesus was. That's characterized his life. He was a man of, of compassion. He was a man of mercy. He was a man of grace. They'll respect that. And it sets a benchmark to start with. Then we can go in and talk about the fact that, that even though Jesus had come from God, that he was incarnation, he was characterized by humility and respect for everyone. Remember, their filter is a caste system. And that caste system was very strong in their minds and in their society. But Jesus, it says in Mark 6.34, when he landed and he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on all of them. He didn't say, I'm going to go over and talk to the Brahmin, the priestly class, or there's the warrior class, I'm going to spend attention to them. He had compassion on the entire crowd, everyone. He was no respecter of persons. That will resonate with them. Then we go on to say, not only of every adult person, but Jesus even loved children. There was a time in Jesus' life, Matthew 19, talks about it where children were trying to come to Jesus. And Jesus' own disciples we're pushing them away, saying, don't bother the master, don't bother the master. And Jesus stopped them, and he rebuked his own disciples. And he said, don't push the children away, let them come to me. Such is the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus was so compassionate, so humble, that children were even an important part of his life. Then, we say, listen to what Jesus said about himself. In Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, even though he was the incarnation of God. And he could have come and made us serve him and worship him. He said, no, I've come not to be served. I've come to serve others. And say, look what even his enemies said about him. Those who despised him, the Brahmin of his time, the priestly class, they looked down on him and they saw him associate with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, have no part with this guy. He's not one of us. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with sinners and eating in the Eastern mind with somebody is a very 
important gesture of acceptance. See, we build on the humanity, and then we turn our focus to Jesus' power. Even though he was a humble man, we know that many humble men and many great humble women have walked the face of the earth and have had been characterized by acts of generosity and kindness and have had good karma. But Jesus was beyond just another person with good karma and who promoted good karma among all people. Jesus came with power. The Bible says in many places that Jesus performed miracles, that he cured everyone of their diseases, no matter what their diseases, no matter what their illnesses were. Jesus reached out and had the power to heal them. And that kind of power can only come from God. And not only that, but but Jesus had authority over the demonic world. And see, the Hindu people understand the demonic world. They believe in the demonic world. They believe that that's one of the possible reincarnations, is to be part of that kind of world. And we say that Jesus even exercised authority over the demonic world. Only God, no mere mortal man could do that. Only God could have command over the demon world. Then we turn to his purpose. Even though he was a man of great humility. And we know that he came from God because he was a man of power. He had to be God living among us. And because he was a man of humility, because he was a man of power, he could have easily demanded that we, we worship him and we're, we're his slaves on earth. But that wasn't his purpose. His purpose is clear throughout our holy scriptures. One place in the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy, it says this, Here's a trustworthy saving that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to what? Save sinners. Save people like me. Save people like you. He didn't come just to show us how to obtain better karma. He came to die. He came to save sinners. And this man who wrote this, his name was Paul. He categorized himself as the worst of sinners. And if you would examine his life, you would find out that he wasn't being humble. At one time, he was possibly the worst of sinners. He was a man who imprisoned innocent, good people. He was a man who had people executed. He was a harsh man that people feared. Then he met Jesus. And Jesus changed him. And he realized that Jesus had come to save sinners. See, our Holy Scripture says in 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins on His body, on a tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds we have been healed. Adah, my fictional Hindu friend I'm talking to. Jesus is the antidote to Samara. Jesus is the promise of being reunited with God. We don't have to live hoping that somehow, someday, over some amount of lifetimes, that ultimately we can be reunited with God. We don't have to live in that kind of frustration and live in that kind of hopelessness because God is a God of love and He sent Jesus Christ, His Son, to die for our sins 
so that we can have immediate access to God for all eternity. He is the antidote. Samara, here's what Jesus has to say to you today. In the book of Matthew, chapter 18, Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, all you are heavy laden. And he says, I will give you rest. Ada, how weary are you? How heavy is that burden of Samara on you? How heavy is that path that you're trying to find moksha through? How tired are you? How hopeless are you? Adah, Jesus' words to you is come to me. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I've not come to put more on you. I've come to take everything off of you. And I offer that to you as a gift. If you live 10,000 lifetimes, you couldn't earn it. I offer to you eternal forgiveness of all your sin, of all your bad karma. If you'll just come to me. These things will resonate in the mind of someone you've built a relationship with. And someone you've been a credible witness to. And the great news is that Hindu people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ right here in our own backyard. But let's put our Hindu friends aside for just a moment. Because not only are these Jesus' words to our Hindu friends, these are Jesus' words to you and me. Some of you here today fit this passage. And Jesus is reaching out to you and he's saying, I see how weary you are. I see how burdened you are. I see the load you're trying to carry all by yourself. And Jesus is saying, I didn't create you to carry that load. I came to take that load off of you. But see, you have to give him that load. You have to surrender it to him. Some of you are believers. You've already trusted Jesus Christ. Yet you're carrying around the load of your own sinfulness because you've not confessed that sin As the Bible says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You're still carrying around the weight and the guilt of the sins that you've committed the last week or the last month or the last year. It's become an enormous weight on your back and you're not designed to carry it. You're designed to give it back to Jesus. But maybe you're here today and you're a man or a woman. You've never put your faith in Jesus. Although you may not be a Hindu, You're really embracing the Hindu religious perspective of life. And you're trying to build up enough good karma in your life, good actions, good deeds, that somehow you're hoping that when you die and you stand before God, that He's going to look at all your good karma as opposed to your bad karma. And and maybe you're going to squeak in with 51%, 52% of good karma over bad karma, and God is going to be tender-hearted towards you and welcome you into His kingdom. It sounds good. It sounds logical. Remember what Proverbs said? There's a way that seems right, but in the end, it leads to what? Death. Because there's one way, 
And Jesus is that way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Let's bow our heads. How about you? Have you ever trusted Jesus as your Savior? Have you ever allowed Him to take the weight of your eternal sinfulness off of your shoulders? Have you allowed Him to pay the penalty of your sins with His blood, with His sacrifice on the cross? If not, the good news is God has led you here through some means to have that opportunity right now. With every head bowed, no one looking around. How about you? Have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior? Or right now, is the Spirit of God knocking on the door of your conscience saying, here's why I brought you here today. I brought you here to get this forgiveness, to receive this gift of eternal life I want to offer you. Well, no one's looking around. I won't embarrass you anyway. But just so I know whether anyone has that need, Right now, you know God's speaking to you, and you need Jesus Christ as your Savior. Would you raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. I need this forgiveness. I don't have it. Pray for me. Yes, I see your hand. You can put it down. Someone else. Yes, I see your hand. You can put it down. Someone else. Pray for me. Yes, I see your hand. You can put it down. Yes, I see your hand. You can put it down. Yes, I see your hand. You can put it down. People raising their hands all over the auditorium today. God's Spirit is here and it's strong. And God's love is reaching out to men and women today. Those of you who raised your hand, God loves you and He brought you here because He loves you. And He doesn't want you to carry around the weight of your own guilt and the weight of the own penalty of your sins. He sent Jesus Christ to take care of that for you. And right now, as a gift, He's offering you forgiveness. To receive that gift, all you have to do is ask for it. Pray something like this, and you can even use my words if you want. Jesus... I need your forgiveness. Jesus, I get it now. Because you were the only one who ever lived a perfect life. You were the only worthy sacrifice for sin. And Jesus, because only you were willing to die on the cross for sin, God has given you alone the authority to forgive sin. It's not what I do. It's what you've done for me. Jesus, as best as I understand this today, I want that gift. So Jesus, today... I transfer my confidence off of my own ability to ever be a good enough man, a good enough woman, to earn heaven. And I transfer my confidence to what you've already done, dying on the cross. Jesus, today, I ask you to be my Savior. I ask you to pay for my sin with your blood. I ask you to adopt me into the family of God. Today, I call upon the name of the Son of God for eternal life. Now, for those of you who just did that, sincerely, and God knows your heart. The Bible says, Yet to as many as received Him, to those who believed on His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. Look up at me. Yes, Jesus is the only way. He's the only one. But He's all we need. Thanks for listening. Here at Father Bible Church, we believe the first and most important step in life's journey is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So the question is, how about you? If you haven't started this relationship, you can use this model prayer. Jesus, I do want to begin a relationship with you. I know that I have sinned against you and cannot save myself. So right now, I ask for your forgiveness of all my sins, and I accept you as my personal Savior, believing that you die on the cross and pay for all my sins. Forgive me now, and please give to me your precious gift of eternal life. Amen. You can find this prayer along with more detailed information on our website at www.floridabible.org. 
Just click the Beginning a Relationship with Jesus button. There you will also learn more about us and find the next steps for a Christ follower. Thanks again for listening to Living Life with Purpose.